Welcome to Know My Faith. My guest is Jay McCall from Calvary Georgetown Divide. That's a heck of a name. Uh, it is. It's it's way too long. It used to be Calvary Chapel on the Georgetown Divide, and we decided to narrow it down to just Calvary and Georgetown Divide. It's it's not like you, know, you say that away from where we live and people think what's wrong with your church yeah. <laughs> so, so we have yeah. to tell them look it's the ridge on which the town greenwood sits and nobody knows where greenwood is so um so we just called it calvary georgetown divide it makes it a little easier i thought you know it's the protestant way divide you know protestant that's that's the thing we do isn't it it's exactly right. We're kind of the fighting people and uh, it gets out of control sometimes. So you're part of you're part of Calvary? Yes. Yes. I've been part of Calvary Chapel, actually. Uh, um, uh, I just tell you a little bit about myself. I grew up in a non-Christian home as an only child and uh, never went to church, didn't know anything about church. All I knew is that I was a 10-year-old atheist and a uh, long story. I won't get into all of that, but the Lord turned that all around when I was 10 years old and, and I became a Christian. But um, uh, uh, it was, uh, uh, it, again, a real long journey getting to a point where I actually had a church that I wanted to go to. And when I was uh, 17, I had graduated from high school. I ended up uh, being invited to go to Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa way back in the Jesus Movement days when this huge church was in a circus tent on a piece of property because they were trying to build a bigger church because they had run out of room for all the hippies and surfers. Yeah, I was a hippie. I had hair that went down my back so far I could reach up my back and grab it. I uh, had Fu Manchu mustache and the whole thing. And and ended up going to that church and uh, uh, just kind of never left. I, I'm, I'm really, um, as far as denominational goes, I want to stick with the Bible. I just happened to, you know, kind of grow yeah. up in, in Calvary Chapel, had a good time with that. I remember um, talking to Barry Maguire one time um, about Calvary Chapel, about, about all those days. And uh, who was the guy that carried the cross round? Uh, Arthur Blessed. Uh, Arthur Blessed. Arthur Blessed. Yeah. Arthur Blessed. So, so Barry says he's he's walking around and he sees Arthur Blessed sitting up on a on a planter somewhere, and and he accidentally made eye contact with him. And this is before Barry had become a Christian. And he says, you know, w w when you do that, you've got to be you've got to be polite and and say something. So he, he says, I just looked at him. I says, what's happening, man? And he says, and and Arthur Blessed just looked at me and goes. Jesus. He says, and that was it. That was all over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. I, I've met him once, but it was a long time ago. I don't know whatever became of him. Maybe he's with the Lord now, but uh, had some friends that knew him and they just yeah. really liked him. He was Remarkable very blunt, but he was very loving. Yeah. I watched one of your videos recently that we want to get into, and uh, this may take uh, a couple of podcasts, which I'll be very, very happy about. But uh, you're teaching on the Galilean wedding um, and all the all the references that Jesus makes to it that yes, we yes. miss because we don't understand that historical cultural background. Um, and, and sometimes, you know, I've got to ask this at the start. There, there are times when people are teaching on, call it the Jewish roots or the, or the Judaic roots of Christianity, and you wonder how much is interposed into the message, almost like eisegesis. You, know, you, you find, oh, this could fit into what Jesus is saying. Right. Yeah, that, that um, is very, very common. Um, and I find it unfortunate because the, it almost treats the Bible as if it's an allegory. Yeah. The Bible is not an allegory. It never was. It, uh, parables are not allegories. They're extremely pointed uh, in their meaning. A friend of mine once called a, a parable 
uh, putting handles on the message, putting handles on scripture so you could carry it around like a satchel or like a briefcase wherever you go, because these people didn't have books. They couldn't afford them, um, uh, even though the Jews were literate beyond any other people group in the known world, that they still, their literacy rate was apparently, and again, uh, right around 8% seems to be the best guess. So uh, that's that's still for them. It was an astonishing literacy rate for us. It's extremely low. So parables really carried the message. But to treat the Bible as an allegory, um, you with allegories with, with a parable, you really can't read anything into it. It makes its point. With an allegory, you can make it say whatever you want it to say, and uh, actually apply any particular application, especially yeah. for pastors that you choose to apply to it. And and when it gets down to things like the Galilean wedding as a type or biblical typology, not allegory, of what the uh, Jesus is talking about as far as his coming to rule and reign on the earth, coming for his bride and what have you. Uh, his disciples would have understood that. Uh, they wouldn't have scratched their heads and went, well, I, I, I don't get what he's saying. They understood exactly what he was yeah. saying. They didn't always know where he was going with it. That became much clearer later on to them. And That's kind of what we do to our grandchildren, isn't it, Jay? They, they know what we're saying, but they don't know where we're going with it. Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Forget grandchildren. How about my kids? Uh, yeah. So let, let's start with the uh, the chuppah, which is the, 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 the covering, you know, his banner over me is love. We, we sang that song, you know, if you've been around since the 70s, you've oh, yes. sung that old song. So let's talk about the chuppah. And I was interested to hear that you said that in that Galilean wedding, the, the chuppah was used for the betrothal, not at the actual wedding ceremony. Well, here's the thing about the Galilean wedding, before I address specifically the hoopah, is that a Galilean wedding was essentially the same thing as almost any regional wedding in the area of that era. And it's still being done to a large extent today uh, in that part okay. of the world, not just among Jews, but there are variations with Arabs. And some of the things that are going on with the Arabs, like the Bedouins, it's exactly the same thing that's in the Bible. Uh, so the the hoopah was not exclusive to the Galileans. It was it was uh, just regional. People used it all over the place. But uh, I've read. Uh, you know, I haven't read every book on the shelf, but I've read a lot of books. I've heard a lot of speakers, experts, as far as like PhDs, seminarians, theologians, uh, archaeologists, some anthropologists. You've heard this, the same people that you've listened to. Yeah. And there's a lot of passed down information that really doesn't have any um, any root in fact, but because the right person said it. People say that must be true. This is what I have to be very, very careful with. You know, I've got I've got uh, huge volumes of information, but you got to sort through it very, very carefully and not with an eye that says this is what I wanted to say. It's just yeah. this is what we have in front of us. The hoopah was often portrayed by even uh, even pastors that I know for a long time. And I believe this for a long time because the right people said it to me and they're good people, people of tremendous integrity, great Bible teachers. but there's this information that kind of creeps in there sometimes, and it's all over the place. But in this specific instance, uh, it was taught that the hoopah was actually four poles with like a prayer shawl on it. So that, you know, when people got married or betrothed, whatever the, yeah. the occasion yeah. was, or some other occasion, like a bar mitzvah or something, that um, it was a holy occasion where a covenant was going to be made. That it was under the 
prayers of God's people and all that. They didn't have prayer shawls like we describe them or like we see them, for instance, yeah. in Israel today. Uh, back in those days, they they would cover their heads frequently to do various things, as you know, holy things and prayer and all of that. But it didn't look like what we have today. And if you go back to uh, even people that are, uh, uh, you know, just because a scholar is secular and occasionally an atheist doesn't mean his data is bad. The data is often pristine. It's tremendous. Yep. It's their interpretation of the data that really takes them off the deep end. Somebody's into higher criticism or something like that. Oh, I, 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 I spoke once to a, uh, a professor of Hebrew from uh, Edinburgh University, one, one of the world's top scholars in Hebrew, an atheist, right. to, a total atheist. And I, and I asked him, um, what, does, what does the writer of Genesis chapter one want us to believe? And he says, he says, well, the writer uses specific language and specific uh, uh, tricks of the language and syntax, etc. He wants you to believe that God created the world in six literal 24-hour days. Now, we know this isn't true because it all evolved, but that's what the writer wants you to believe. You know? <laughs> yes. So, so he's, he's got the truth there. He just doesn't believe it. Exactly. Uh, you know, so, uh, exactly. And, and when you glean these things, and again, you got to have very, you got to put the, like all the right lenses on to see who is it that's talking to me and what are they saying? What you find is that it was the finest piece of cloth that they anybody could afford at the time. It was used for mostly ceremonial purposes. It could have been used for other purposes, but either way, it was held up by the poles to represent the cloud that descended on the mountain when Moses received the covenant from God. It's the place okay. where covenants were made. So there's this cloud of glory, as it were, that would descend. And so this, this is the first covenant for Israel, is that cloud cover yes. during that first covenant. Yeah. Right. But see, it was such a powerful covenant. The Jews, of course, Moses, Moses and the law, Moses and the covenant that God made with him and reinforced yeah. with him and, and, and uh, uh, you know, and, and continued to remind him of but the cloud of God's glory being over or enveloping at times the place where all of this communication went on between God and Moses or coming out from the mountain so the people could hear. So that this is the hoopah. It's not just to provide shade. That's a convenient use of it. And it's very good. And, yeah. and it's an obvious use of it too. But it was to remind people a covenant is being made. This is the place. And in the case of the Galileans, for a betrothal, you would have it because that's the beginning of the marriage. So it's a covenant that's being made because a marriage is a covenant. And there, even though I haven't found written evidence of this, that for the regional Jews and the Galileans, that it would be required at the marriage ceremony taking place at the father of the bridegroom's house approximately a year later. All yeah. we know is that it happened at the house, in the house, and probably had a hoopah, but it's really not mentioned in any extra biblical documents, much less in, inside the scriptures, which yeah. is fascinating. Yeah, it's, 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 as you say, it's difficult sometimes to, to dig through and find out actually what did happen. But what you're saying about the prayer shawls then upsets me because that means Daryl Jenkins and the Chosen are wrong. Those Pharisees have got the wrong... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, one of the things I was, uh, um, I was I was talking to Matthew about this earlier, uh, and and uh, what's fascinating is that the Jews, as in general, my I have Jewish friends that are just, uh, you know, I learn so much from them, I glean so much from them. Yes, but I have one particular Jewish friend who actually his ministry is to 
witness to Jews about the Messiah in a way that the Jews can receive it. You won't see too many Jews coming forward in an altar call, for instance. That just doesn't happen. But um, one of the things that I had to ask him was, how do we know what an ancient wedding looked like? How do I know what a Galilean wedding actually looked like? Because when I really started to get into the nuts and bolts of it, he said, you have to take what we have today, and then you have to take out everything that was added after the fall of the temple. Because, as he put it, being very Jewish, Jacob Cohen, I mean, he's Jewish. Yeah. And uh, he was born, raised in an Orthodox Jewish home, born in Afula, Israel, fascinating individual, and a very, very close friend. But he just said, you got to remember that the Jews will tell you we've always done it that way. Yeah. And in memory, that is really a, a sort of a, an anthropological truth, but it's not factual. Yeah. Because they haven't always done it that way. Orthodox Jews that I've talked about, uh, talked to in Israel at the Western Wall, they will tell you definitively that the Western Wall is where Jacob went, excuse me, where uh, rather Abraham went to sacrifice Isaac there. This is, another Jew told me that it's the not on the Temple Mount at the Western Wall, they will say. Yep. And I, another fellow, a rabbi who was standing in front of me in the security line to go through uh, to the Western Wall, who was from New York. And he said, you know why this is sacred to us? And he said, because this is where Jacob laid his head on a rock and saw the ladder ascending and descending to heaven. And I said, well, you know. No, there was, there was um, Bethel. Yeah, it was Beitel. Yeah, it's yeah. 12, you know, it's 17 miles north. It's, it's yeah. up in that direction. And, and I didn't say that to him because I don't want to challenge him. I want to hear what he has to say. And I said, well, where do you get that? And he says, we've always known that. Have they? So uh, there are so many traditions of the Jewish people that are absorbed today, not only by the Jews themselves, especially the practicing Jews of whatever level of orthodoxy they might be, yeah. and also for Christians who examine the Jews to try and understand what it is that they're reading in the Bible, that by the time the Talmud was written, the Jews who were working on the Talmud were trying to come up with a theology that would cover their tracks when they didn't have a temple or sacrifices anymore. What do we have to do? And they were readapting their theology, and they were doing it in a manner that was done by Hellenized thinking people. And that's a whole other discussion. I mean, that's a big one. But the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is not a Hellenized book, though Paul could drift that way. It's not a Hellenized book. And now suddenly people are looking into the analytical eyes of the Greeks rather than the the ancient dialectical logic of the Jewish people that says, you know, the Bible is a revelation, not always an explanation. It's God speaking to us. Just believe what he says and do it. That yeah. was that's the way the Bible's written, but instead the, anal- the analysis gets in there, the traditions start to change, the emphasis changes, and then we've always done it that way, and yeah. that's where we can really get. I mean, it doesn't really take away from any essential doctrine in the Bible, but it can draw us off the path of where God is saying, "I have an even more powerful message for you," and it's not only more powerful; it's far more simple than you ever imagined. Because we, as Western Westernized people, Greek-thinking people, tend to overthink the problem and yeah. we try and quantify everything. The Jews never did that with the scriptures. What it should do, I'm, I'm just going to reach down here for a minute. Don't mind me. Um, wh- what it should do is it, it should enhance our knowledge and our enjoyment of Jesus. When we discover all of this, if I, um, I don't know if you can see this, hopefully you can see this painting. Yes, I see the ship with holes in it, and, uh, uh, the sails there, I can see the okay. top part of it. It's, it's a pretty good painting, isn't it? 
Yes, it is. All right, and, and when you look at it close up, um, I got this painting years ago. When you look at it close up, there's an awful lot of detail in the, and you go, wow, that's, you know, that's, a, that's a very, very good artist. And then I'll tell you that it was painted by a guy who used his feet. Interesting. And you go, wow. And, and to me, this is, this is what I try and do and why I'm talking to you is what I try to do is, is to add that little bit of an extra information for our, our viewers and the people listening so that they go, wow, Jesus, you're even more wonderful than I thought beforehand. And that's what I love to do. You know, when I get done with the sermon on Sunday morning, uh, I am frequently greeted by guests who say, I never heard the scripture taught that way before. And I get to tell them I have the best job in the world. I get yeah. to make the scripture simple. Because yeah, that's it, true. it was written to peasants. It wasn't written to intellectuals or theologians, even though they're the ones who eventually get their hands on it. It was written for illiterate peasants to completely understand what was going on in there. Yeah, that's right. So, all right. So we, we, we're going to lose the, the, the wedding there for a minute. So the, the chuppah, the, 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 the sheet that's held up by the four poles, and we, we've, we've all seen it on Fiddler on the Roof, um, right. that points back to the cloud that covered Sinai, when God made the original covenant with the people of Israel. Right. So it's just um, a covenant happening in this place. And it's just yeah. a reminder, this is the place of the covenant. So one of the other things that you go into is, is what is a covenant? Because we've kind of lost that as well. Yes. Um, around 1900, in the Western world, for some reason that I'm sure a lot of people can come up with uh, different explanations, the whole idea of what a covenant was just vanished. It just disappeared from uh, the uh, understanding of westernized people. Uh, the, uh, I, I mentioned to you at one point about the Book of Common Prayer uh, of the Anglican Church. Yeah. The Book of Common Prayer in the Anglican Church has all kinds of things in it, including what is a very, very traditional Western or English-speaking wedding ceremony. And in there, at the end of the vows that the bride and the groom make, they end their vows with, until death us do part. That's right. And that's an indication that they understood not that statement as sentiment. They understood it as covenant. So even back in the 1600s, all the way up to around 1900, people knew. But after that, I think the Romantic movement, the German rationalist movement, everything that came in, it just sort of sort of flattened out our thinking in the West. And now uh, um, uh, weddings, marriage itself as a covenant became sentiment. And yep. now in our, you know, around the time of the 60s, you have uh, people trying to redefine marriage as, well, it's only a piece of paper or it's an intent or it's when two people love each other and they want to be together for the rest of their lives and they intend to be together. It's, it's a statement of intent is yep. what it really boils down to. And when somebody says until death us do part, how many people really mean it? Well, the divorce rate tells us that. I know sometimes divorce is just... Uh, tragically have to yeah. happen. But most of the time, it's only because, well, I said that, but I can go back on that. But when you make a covenant with somebody in those days, and uh, all the way up until modern times, depending on who you're talking to, especially people like uh, uh, like the Bedouin Arabs today, they might live in cities as opposed to so many of them living out in the, in the sand dunes like yeah. they used to do. But they think of it the same way, that when you make a covenant with somebody, you're not signing a contract. Um, uh, 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 let, me, let me explain this. Is this all right if I go on a little bit here? Sure. Great. Right. 
Okay. I do premarital counseling on, uh, occasionally, and I do marriage counseling. And when I do this, I always start with both couples, whether their marriage is on the rocks or whether or not they're intending to get married with the same questions. Because really for people going into a marriage, it can set them up for life. People whose marriage is on the rocks, it can suddenly solidify the beauty of where they stand, despite the fact that their house is, is in shambles. Right. Um, well, uh, I asked the question, what is marriage? And I get this, this, this one word answer that just is uh, from both the husband and wife or the, or the intended uh, yeah. to each other. Because what's coming next now is their best guess. And I'll hear all kinds of things. Like I said, it's just a piece of paper. It's a set of promises. It's promises that you will keep for life. It's, it's, a, it's a commitment of love before a holy God and all of that. All of that is true, but it misses the point. And then I'll ask, and I'll finally say, well, okay, look, it's a covenant. Now I ask them the second question. What is a covenant? What I is get a covenant? One word answer. Uh, and then I realize what's coming next is their best guess. And I have rarely ever had anybody just look me straight in the eye and tell me what it was. A covenant is when two people make a promise, a vow, or a commitment to each other in such a manner where there are witnesses watching it who will hold them accountable for it. And when they're done ratifying the covenant, whether it's through a blood sacrifice back in the Old Testament, or whether it's by breaking bread and each eating a piece of the same piece of bread, or by drinking a cup and passing the cup back and forth, now the audience sees the two people that made the covenant, whether it was a marriage covenant or even a business type of a deal or some sort of a spiritual covenant, they see them now as kin and we're talking about blood related. Now, we don't expect a miracle that's going to make us, you know, DNA related. That's not the point. Yeah. But yeah. that's the way they were perceived. So that when a bride and a bridegroom get together underneath that hoopah and they partake of this cup, which is a ratification of the covenant after the terms of the covenant was read by the papas. I'm kind of going in reverse order here, which happens at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, read to the audience, these people are here because the papas have agreed on the terms. It's usually an arranged marriage. There's, there's a specific term for that, isn't there, the, the terms? What's... Yeah, it's called, um, uh, sorry, it's called a ketubah. Uh, ketubah. You might have heard yeah. of ketubah. That's sort of a Yiddish pronunciation, but it's a ketubah. ketubah. And it's it's covenant. Uh, and uh, it's uh, when it's arranged, well, I, like I say, I'm going backwards in the whole process here. But since we're at the hoopah, right outside the hoopah, the papas read it. Or if they can't read, somebody reads it for them. Two identical copies to make sure everybody knows that one guy didn't have a different copy than the other. And the both papas agree on the terms and everybody shouts amen. In other words, you both agreed on it. Therefore, yeah. it stands as law. And then bride and the groom, after going through other types of procedures in the particular orders that they had, they end up drinking a cup of wine with each other, just taking a sip, taking a sip, passing it back and forth. And then everybody shouts amen because the covenant has been made under the hoopah, the, the cloud, the place of the covenant, the glory of God is with the Shekinah. There it is. And uh, uh, when people look at them now, even though they're not going to live as husband and wife for a year, that they are perceived as, of all the strange things to us Westerners, as brother and sister. Okay. There's nothing strange, perverted, incestuous about that. It's that now they're the same blood. They now belong to the same family, even though they will be living apart from each other for an indeterminate amount of time that will 
end with the bridegroom coming for the bride about a year later. About a year, so yeah. That's the way the hoopah was. It was the place of the covenant, and here's how they would make that covenant. So we've, uh, I mean, we have similarities with that, uh, which we see in the movies all the time. You know, you, you cut the hand, and we're, we're now blood brothers. Um, in New Zealand, I don't know if you know uh, the, the Maori tradition of a hongi. Uh, have you heard of the hongi? I haven't. Okay, so the, the, the hongi is, is where we touch noses and we, ex, we expel and inhale breath while ah. our noses are touching. And this is the mixing of our breath and, and, and that makes us brothers. So what, if I can hopefully paraphrase and, and summarize what you've said, you've got the, the, the agreement, the marriage agreement is made between the two fathers and, and they both agree on the terms. Uh, and so at the ceremony, you have the chupa, which is the covering. You've got the witnesses there to listen. The terms are read out. Dad of the bride agrees. Dad of the groom agrees. All the witnesses go, yeah, we heard that and we heard you agree. And the bride and the groom drink the wine to say we agree and accept the terms. Would, would that be a, a rough summary? That's it. And when they're done taking the cup, with the amen of the witnesses, because you've done it, you, they, they both agreed because they both drank from the cup. So there's an agreement there. And now they are considered by the witnesses legally married, though they don't live as husband and wife, for another full year in yeah. there. So this is, this is, this is the situation when, when uh, and we'll get to this maybe this time, but maybe next time. I think this, we're going to have to go into two, two podcasts for this. But this is the situation that Mary and Joseph were in when Mary found herself pregnant by the Holy Spirit. They were betrothed legally. Yes. And this is, uh, it, it, if we understand this legal betrothal that they are, you know, that they're brother and sister, as it were, they're legally married, but they're supposed to now keep themselves pure. Mary's supposed to be wearing a veil every time she leaves the house, which represents her purity and the fact that she is covenanted to a man and that she is now a one man woman, as it yeah. were. Don't even try and go after me or talk to my dad because I am now the bride of another man. But obviously, we have haven't been brought together as husband and wife yet. And it's during this time, this period of time, which is um, referred to by a lot of different people by different things, but we'll just call it the betrothal period, which is again about a year. Yeah. She's supposed to keep herself pure. According to the scriptures, as you read during the betrothal time, this is when the, you know Gabriel meets her and says, yeah. by the way, you're going to bear the Messiah and you're going to conceive him by the Holy Spirit because she says, I have known no man. In other words, she's kept herself pure. During the betrothal period, suddenly turning up pregnant, this is outrageous. So yes. God didn't make it easy. And what's most interesting is that when Mary finds out that she's this has happened to her, the first thing she does is pack up and go down to her cousin Elizabeth's house down there in in Karim, which is near, uh, that's a traditional location, but probably close, if not correct, which is where uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth are. She stays there for three months until John the Baptist is born. And you have the Magnificat and all of that yeah. thing that happens when she's, you know, the baby leaps in her in, in uh, uh, Elizabeth's womb and all. And then Mary comes back to Nazareth and she is by now beginning to show. Yes. So this would be the beginning of things. So she steps into Nazareth and Joseph doesn't know what's happening. Now he's ready to put her away. This doesn't mean kill her. It means that he's going to take that 
ketubah that was read, uh, you know, with the covenant, uh, the ketubah covenant underneath yeah. the hoopah, and he will actually take it, fold it up, and slash it and hand it back to her. So basically, he, he he's he's able to divorce her as such because of uh, infidelity. And that would be a divorce because. Obviously, he knows it wasn't him, and it yeah. couldn't have been him, uh, but other people don't know, and people are going to talk. This could also get her, uh, theoretically, it could get her killed. There are two different opinions on this. And number one, they would stone her, or number two, they wouldn't because the Jews respected unborn children, which they did. They wouldn't kill her yeah. to cause the baby to suffer. So uh, chances are it was Joseph would divorce her quietly, which means he would divorce her and send her back down to Zacharias and Elizabeth, where she could live somewhat in moral exile at that point and never be seen in Nazareth again. And then his honor is preserved. Her family honor is preserved. Her honor is not, it couldn't be questioned, but it can't be questioned up close. Yeah. So life can go on and everybody can live with it. But for her, him to follow the Lord's command, to say, don't be ashamed to take Elizabeth as your Mary. wife. Mary, excuse me. Yeah. <laughs> right. I need a cup of coffee, I think. Anyway, don't be ashamed to take Mary as your wife. Thank you very much. My wife does that during sermons, by the way. She'll go, yeah. no, wrong scripture. <laughs> anyway, um, but don't be afraid to do that because that, that which is uh, conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. You'll call his name Jesus. And well, this, so, this, Jay, this puts a whole new emphasis. I mean, we knew, we knew from, from Mary, you know, okay, so Mary's, uh, she's starting to show people are going to start asking questions. Obviously, uh, in their minds, you've had sex with someone. Joseph has the opportunity to take the, 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 the covenant, the ketubah, and tear it up and go, it wasn't me. But he right. doesn't do that. He holds right. on to it, which implies it was me. I mean, that, that's the implication, isn't it? It is. It, it's it, Joseph, and for Joseph and Mary to stay in Nazareth, and Nazareth was a tiny little village. It didn't even have a wall yeah. back in those days. Yeah. So, uh, again, just a handful of families. Families were big, but the guess is between 150 and two, and maybe two to 300 people at the most in the village. Everybody knows everybody else. Everybody knows every other family. Families yeah. are often linked together by marriage. And here's Mary and Joseph, and she's pregnant. And he's, and, and he's accepting it. He's accepting the shame. And with people in that part of the world, as you know, that it, guilt and innocence are secondary to shame and honor. Yeah. And him saying he'll keep Mary is not to honor her, but to accept the shame and uh, the contempt of the entire village. But he's obeying the Lord, which tells us what an amazing guy yeah. Joseph really was. That's something that's not so obvious to us. We just say, well, he did a very powerful and noble and courageous thing. More than that, More he than was, that. in many ways, like the the his 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 shall we say his uh, uh, stepson. What would he call Jesus to Joseph? Stepson, yeah. But take, you know, Jesus took our shame on the cross, you know, he bore the cross, uh, despising the shame. Here's Joseph taking the shame that Jesus is causing Mary, and Jesus is holy, he's God yeah. being incarnated in Mary. And Mary is, is, uh, is rejoicing in this fact. And Mary, you know, Joseph, I don't know if he's rejoicing a lot, but he's extremely obedient to God in this, where I think almost any other man would have run the other way. Yeah. It also lets us know why, I mean, one of the, one of the, uh, the difficulties we have with the whole uh, nativity narrative is that 
Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Uh, the, the, the wrong story, of course, is that the three wise men turn up the night he's born and then they run off to Egypt, which doesn't work because he was presented at the temple 40 days later, you know, and, and these things. But it right. says that after, in, in Luke, that after Mary and Joseph presented Jesus at the temple, they then went back to Nazareth went home to Nazareth. But two years later, you find them back in Bethlehem when the wise men do turn up. And you go, well, why did they go back to Bethlehem? And you've just answered that question. Nazareth was a small town. Everybody knew that those guys had been mucking around before marriage and that Jesus was technically uh, an illegitimate child. Very much so. So, so, the, so the shame, they go, let's, let's just go back to Bethlehem. And just a side note, um, the reason Joseph originally took Mary to go to Bethlehem and Jesus was born in Bethlehem was because Joseph has family there. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, so finding Joseph and Mary going back and forth at any time, even though it's barely mentioned in the Bible, it's there. That's because Joseph has immediate family or perhaps extended family in Bethlehem. When, you know, when it says there's no room at the inn, there's yeah. a, it's a phenomenally interesting word uh, that is cataluma, which is a guest room. There's no room in the cataluma. Well, a guest room is actually a guest room in a house. Yeah. Houses were multiple levels. And you have the Cataluma, which is the highest room. And then you have sort of a living quarters and other places where people would sleep in large groups. And then you had like a barn-like structure in the lower levels over by the kitchen. And it was in the lower levels because they had like window structures built into this basement area because animals put out a great deal of heat, body heat, and it warmed the house. It was like, you know, like a heating system. Well, the only place left open in a house would be that barn or known as what we would call the manger, even though manger is actually a feeding trough. Yeah. It's a generalized term for that area. And so when he goes into Bethlehem, if he had relatives there, it would be to their utter shame in the presence of the entire neighborhood for them to turn Joseph out. So you got to sleep with the animals and that's yeah. where they end up going. Otherwise it would be the shame of the family to just say, you're going to have to be out on the street. And it would be so much easier to go back. I mean, they were there for a month and a half for 40 days. Um, during yes. uh, uh, Miriam's uh, um, uh, period of, of uh, uncleanness after the birth of a child. And so, I mean, we, we were in, in Israel for six and a half weeks, four years ago, and we made some friends. I, I, I could stay with them forever. I could move to Carmiel, and these would be my new friends. So yes. you know, for them to go back to say, hey, look, we made some good friends in Bethlehem. Let's go. Anyway, we, we've gone way off the... Uh, <laughs> Way off the marriage thing um, in some way. So let's go back to the um, to the, the 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 wine that is drunk. Why wine? Have you researched into that? Why is why is wine the important thing? Well, covenants. Most covenants were blood covenants, and the wine to them red. Uh, it was, you know, represented a lot of different things. Again, it, because we're very binary in our thinking, we would think it would mean one thing or another, but it could mean multiple things to these people. Okay. And usually it would mean blood uh, because it's red. Uh, we're not talking about white wine here. We're talking about, you know, the, the blood of the grapes, as they would call it. And they use the word blood for a reason. Yeah. Um, that also it could mean uh, uh, a cup of rejoicing because the type of cup that was used at a, a marriage covenant or at a covenant that was as grave as a marriage, even though it's rejoicing, I'm just saying as solemn as a marriage is, that they would use a cup of undiluted wine. 
Now, there's a lot of discussion about did was the wine at the Last Supper diluted or not and all of that. That's not where we're going. But the idea here was that they would have a cup of undiluted wine. It would be a ceremonial cup. So it's a ceremonial sip. They're not going to drink it straight because, uh, once again, in those days, if a person drank wine undiluted, they were often believed to be, uh, uh, I guess the old King James calls them a wine bibber, you know, okay. basically an alcoholic, a drunk or something yeah. like that. So the wine was frequently diluted. But in the case of a solemn ceremony, it would be drunk straight. So this was known by a lot of things, but also known as a cup of the covenant, the cup of rejoicing, the cup of joy could be known as. Yeah. And they would only drink it in little tiny sips. And that was just to ratify the covenant, but they would drink out of the same cup. And you see this at the Last Supper too. So um, yeah, there's the there's the see this is the thing because I think one of the things that you said was that the groom says to the bride, "I will not drink of the cup again until the marriage ceremony," similar to what Jesus says. Now I know. With the wine that was the, the the cup, the third cup that Jesus drank, and it's it's called the um, uh, the fruit of the vine, as opposed to just wine. There's a special term for that cup. Is that the right. same thing with the marriage cup? It's called it, it, it's called the fruit of the vine. Well, it it could be, but okay. see, that wasn't the point that was going on there. Um, let me kind of tie this together for you. Um, when the cup was drunk. First of all, uh, I'm going to give you a couple of extra details here um, uh, that uh, when the bridegroom, they're at the point where they're going to drink the cup. Uh, there's been an exchange of gifts. The bride price has been paid by the father of the bridegroom to the father of the bride, which might be you know, probably animals. The yep. dowry, usually possessions, could have been money, but it usually was possessions, is presented before everybody. That's that's her safety net in case something happens to the bridegroom, whether he um, uh, abandons her, dies, uh, something happens, he disappears. I mean, these things happened a lot more back in those days. Uh, and, but then... Uh, as they're underneath this hoopah, after all of this happens, that the bridegroom is handed a cup, handed a pitcher, he pours this cup of, of, of undiluted wine, this cup of joy, in as fine of a cup as the people can afford. Peasants, it still might be a, just a stone cup, but, but it's as fine as they can do because it's such a solemn thing. And he presents it to the bride. He just hands it to her. Now, at this point, the bride is given a privilege that really women in that world, no matter whether they were from the Hebrew world or the Greco-Roman world or any place else, were never given. And that was the opportunity to call the wedding off. She, she was able to refuse it. Yeah, he can't do it. But she is given the privilege. All hail the Hebrews. Man, what a blessing. They just, they, the God just working through them in such beautiful ways to yeah. make sure that, that despite the different roles that men and women have in this world, that he leveled the playing field in an amazing way. He hands the bride the cup. And if she wants him, if she agrees, this is a moment, yes or no, for her. Nobody else gets it, only her. And now only at this moment. It doesn't happen any other time. It's like, you know, now or never. Yep. She wants him, she takes the cup, she takes the sip and hands it back to him. And he takes it from her hand and then he takes a sip. Done deal. But if she doesn't want him in front of all the witnesses, she pushes the cup back. She rejects the cup. Now, you think of this, the, you know, just the words that we use when we're reading the Bible and doing Bible studies, what that would mean to us, symbolically at the very least, rejecting the cup, the marriage is off. 
she will not marry this man. She doesn't want to marry this man. And even though it's her right to do so, yeah. now suddenly probably the hoopah falls down. There are fist fights, dust flying in the air, you know, furniture flying around, whatever the case may be. Uh, but nobody there would deny her right to do it. So uh, that was what she would do. But if she took the cup, then she has received the bridegroom and she's received the covenant the cup of the covenant that the bridegroom has offered her. She's taken the sip. She hands it back to him. He takes the sip and says, you are now covenanted to me by the laws of Moses and Israel. Now he may or may not say what's coming next. He doesn't have to say it because everybody knows what's going to happen, but he could say it. And I'm sure frequently people did say these things, maybe more frequently than we know, where he would say that, you, uh, I will not drink of this cup again, or this fruit of the vine, as it were, yeah. until I drink it anew with you in my father's house. Now, that simply means that we're going to re-ratify the covenant in front of all the witnesses on our wedding day, so that now we will live as husband and wife from this point on. So this happens inside the compound of the, the, the bridegroom's family or his father's house. And all the witnesses, all the guests are there and he'll pour the cup again and he'll take the first sip. And then he hands it to her and she takes the sip. That re-ratifies the covenant. There's nothing wrong with that. People yeah. do that all the time. God does it many times in the Old Testament. Keeps re-ratifying his covenant so that people know that it's there. Yeah, not that yeah. he broke it. I wonder, if it's the, I wonder if it's the cup itself that he says, I won't drink of this cup again. Like the, 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 the cup itself is put aside until that ratification. Well, it very, it very well could be. A, a family cup with a peasant home could be used for a lot of different ceremonial purposes. So yeah. they would keep it in a place that was commonly referred to as their holiest shrine. We would call it the family safe or perhaps the china cabinet where you keep all the good china in there for yeah. special guests or special occasions. This is where the, the ketubah would have been kept, the kosher plates for special meals and all of that. Whatever the family could afford, this is where they keep all the jewels, so to speak. And so they could reuse the cup for other purposes. But when it came down to that cup, it's identifying the cup of the covenant, whether it's that, well, it would be the same receptacle for sure, but it would be the use of this cup uh, under the same covenantal circumstances, but a year later, when we're finally together for the rest of our lives, and they would do this. So you go to the to the Last Supper. Yep. Jesus pours all these different cups. On the third cup, he pours the cup, and he said, this cup means the new covenant uh, in my blood, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins of many. And drink it, all of you, for I will not drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you, or this fruit of the vine again, literally, or because I will not drink it uh, until I drink it anew with you again in my Father's kingdom. Now, what's interesting about that statement is that in any Passover, that statement is not there. It doesn't exist in the Passover. So the question comes up, why did Jesus say that? Why did he say it in that where, where do you, So what, you, what you're saying is in, in, a, in a traditional Passover, first century Passover, that term is not there. So, not, so not, why is he saying it? Not the phrase. And so what the, so you got to crawl in the disciples' heads. First of all, they're all Galileans, except for possibly Judas. Judas may or may not have been, so we'll just you know, count him out for now. Yeah. But um, they, what they hear is wedding. Because, you know, I, I'm not going to drink it again until I drink it anew with you in my father's 
kingdom. Well, they would hear father's house. And some of these guys were married. Uh, yep. You know, obviously Jesus wasn't. I don't care what people think and say. It's not there. But, you know, but these guys, they know what's going on. They've been to weddings before. They've seen this happen. So Jesus uses that. And that's not the only time during the Last Supper he refers to a wedding. Uh, it's fascinating that the whole week before the Last Supper, that when they ask him about his second coming, he equates it at times to a wedding. And not just any wedding, but their style of wedding up in Galilee. But at the Last Supper, he does this thing with the cup. And then later on, John 14, 1, he talks about what a bridegroom does after he's taken the covenant, after she's taken the cup of covenant under the hoopah, and the party's broken down and everybody goes back to their houses. And this is, this is where this is where the bridegroom goes back to his father's house to prepare a place for his bride. That's it. He goes back to do two things, mainly. There's a lot of other things going on. But two things are his project, and that is to put together the feast. Now, if they're very poor, this is a very, very difficult and expensive proposition. But when the wedding occurs in a year, he's got to be ready. So he's yep. got to put together the feast, which means whatever type of tables they had there, whatever type of settings, whatever kind of food, he's responsible for getting it. Even if they don't have two coins to rub together, he's got to do this. But his bigger project is in the family compound because families were not individuals that lived together. They were a collectivist society. Every member of the family was an extension of everybody else in their minds. So that's why they lived as families. They worked as families. They needed lots of kids to help work farms or, or herd you know, animals or what have you. Uh, and so they had large families and patriarchs would be there all the way to the youngest children. Somebody gets married uh, to someone and they bring the, if it's a male, they bring the bride home. She takes on the family name. Don't we have that in our Western culture? I wonder where it came from. Uh, probably from the Middle East, way yeah. back when it was just absorbed it. But the bride now is family with the bridegroom's family. And he has to add a room onto this compound. Now, if there's a lot of people living there, chances are he's starting to build up. So on your wedding night, ladies, you got to climb a ladder in your wedding dress. Isn't that interesting? But you've got to get up there. And he builds this room and it's yeah. got to be to the father's satisfaction. And then uh, so he, uh, Jesus put it like this, John 14, he said, you know, let not your hearts be troubled because he just gave them all kinds of bad news. I'm going to be betrayed. Peter, you're going to deny me. All of you are going to desert me, but let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. For in my father's house are many, we say mansions. That is a logical conclusion of the translators of the, yeah. of the King James Bible, because they couldn't believe, as you and I both agree, we're not going to live in lean-tos when we get to heaven. So their logical conclusion was for rooms, which is what the word is, once again, ketubah, it says there's a room there, that um, that you uh, it, it would define, the, the context will define what type of room it was. So it wasn't the building itself, it was the room. And in my father's house are many, well, what are they? Mansions? Rooms? Mm -hmm. Well, the context says bridal chamber, even though literally that's not the 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 term. And I, I said ketubah for the term. It's not ketubah. Sorry, it's a different word. It slipped out of my mind. Forgive me for that. But anyway, um, and then he says, uh, and you, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Uh, sorry, let me start again. Um, for in my father's house are many rooms. Uh, and I go there, there we go, to prepare a place for you. And if I go there to prepare a place for you, I will come to you to take you to be with me where I am. You know the place where I am going. Well, what he just described in their minds was a wedding, yeah. the way that they would do it. 
that the bridegroom goes home. He takes a year. He builds a room onto the house. And then at a designated time that the father designates, he goes out with his groomsmen to get his bride and bring her back to the house. And now they will live forever in the father's compound. They didn't go out and get a, a house in the country or, a, a, you know, a, yeah. or start a farm somewhere. They stayed in the compound with everybody else and worked whatever the family did. You know, participated yeah. in the family. Um, we, we are definitely going to have to uh, stop shortly, and then we'll, we'll do another um, another one of these. In a, well, you and I will do it in a moment, and, and whenever the viewers or listeners are doing it, they, they can pick it up. But uh, a friend of mine who he was living in a, in a really really nice house truck, and his son, uh, sorry, his son-in-law and daughter said, uh, "Dad, look, we've built this place for you on our property." Self, self-contained, what we would call in New Zealand a granny flat. Yes, we call it something here. Yeah. So, okay, so it's you know it's 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 got the lounge, it's got the bedroom, it's got the bathroom, and a little kitchen. Um, and, and and to me, this is what Jesus is saying. I'm going back to my father's compound to build a place for us. Right. A, a little place for us. And that's what he was telling them. And they understood this yeah. uh, to mean that he is good. Well, what, well here's, here's what's going on. The disciples from the beginning think they found the Messiah. They had, but they had no idea the, 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 uh, the enormity of what was really going on. But they expected Jesus to somehow be some sort of a political or military leader, because this is all they've ever seen. In the, in the course of Israel's history or Judean history from the time of the Hasmoneans to the fall of the temple uh, and even beyond that there were some 39 to 40 different messianic people that rose up and all of them took up the sword to get rid of the Romans these guys think they're going to do it Uh, that's what they're going to do and their argument about who's going to sit at his right hand and his left hand had to do with the great feast of the conquering king that's that's there in isaiah 25 that they think that there jesus is going to take over he's going to take up the sword and he's finally going to do it uh the palm sunday the palm branches is is a sign of conquest save now get us out from the romans the romans are probably freaking out at the time just going crazy so here comes jesus and he says it's not going to be that way And he continually told them this, you know, through various other illustrations. And this, I think, was one of the most significant ones that he did because he said, listen, I am telling you what I'm going to do. Like a bridegroom who has the cup, the cup of the new covenant, you've taken the cup. Now, listen, I'm not going to drink of this cup again until I drink it anew with you in my father's kingdom. Now, they're thinking, oh, great, we're going to have a kingdom. Let's get the swords. And then later on, he says that uh, I go there to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come and take you to be with me where I am. And the, the general consensus, I think, adds up to what Philip said to Jesus right afterwards. He said, just show us the Father. That'll be enough. In other words, we don't get what you're saying. Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah. Right. But Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to be like a bridegroom. I'm trying to tell you what the end of the world yeah. is going to be like and what the end of this age starting right now is going to be because I'm going to the cross tomorrow. That I'm going away and I'm not going to conquer yet, but I will come back to take you to be with me where I am. And that's like a bridegroom going away for a while and I'm coming back. All right. We're going to break here and and, and we're going to come back. Uh, This is because what what he's trying to do to them is what we're trying to do as well. He's going, this is the way you've been traditionally thinking and it's wrong. 
I need to teach you this. Jay, thank you so much for your time. Don't go away. And uh, for those that are watching or listening at the moment, uh, push whatever buttons or, or things you need to do above or below uh, and make sure that you're watching next time. God bless you.